to cover again this morning, as you can see. I, I'm, um, I'm going to be very brave and hope that I can actually tackle a timeline for us this morning. Uh, those are tougher because I can't send those out by email to you, so we, whatever we get up here is what, what you will have. But what I hope it will do for you is encourage you yourselves to take the time to do a timeline occasionally as you're progressing through a study like this because I felt like, at least for me, getting these things on a timeline, getting that perspective uh, helped me to kind of see where everything is fitting, where, you know, as he's presenting different truths and as we're... Um, looking at some of these cross-references and when things were said and how it was said and in perspective to everything. Um, even uh, yet again this week where we see this Hebrew author uh, making mention now again of, the, of uh, a, this new priesthood and of uh, the uh, tabernacle, correct? And so when you think about that tabernacle, what time frame does that take your mind to? How far back into the old? Le yeah, all the way back to Moses and Leviticus. So if you consider that, the writing of this, this author is making a reference to something that has not been around for like a thousand years probably for him at that time in history. And that is humongous when you really grasp the enormity of that. Because for us, you know, at least in the initially you might have you might be dropping in there and thinking, well, the temple's still up, right? But is everything in that temple and its services and its ex the exercising or the executing of all these ceremonies and processes, are they being done correctly? Are they being done in the exact manner in which they were before? And um, I think if you've done any kind of research or study, you've come to, to know through the time that there was a lot of things that were polluted along the way. Um, and so interesting, although certainly the temple was there and he did have that visible um, point before him and before the audience that he was making um, this message to, but yet there's also some things that are slightly uh, different because of the move from the tabernacle to the temple, and we, we had a temple, and then what happened with that first temple? It was destroyed, and then what happened? We had a second one rebuilt, right? And as the priesthood went along through the generations, does anybody know kind of what has happened to the priesthood through the generations by the time we get to the days of Jesus? Does anybody know? Well, yeah, they're pretty wicked. And, and it has certainly, we have a, such a corrupt Levitical system by the time Jesus comes on the scene um, that it's a good thing God was doing away with it right? Um, and he makes mention in here at the close of chapter 8 that, that concerning this Levitical system and the old covenant, what was it about to happen to it? It was about ready to pass away. Now, this is an interesting statement, don't you think, in the ears of those that he was speaking to in that moment? The temple was still there, so what was he actually warning them about? that there was going to be a destruction. Do you think any of them really believed that at that moment? No, probably. Although certainly there were some signs for them because there was an awful lot of persecution building and it was becoming exponentially greater and greater with Rome coming against them and other various things. And, uh, but, but still, I don't think they really totally foresaw and really believed that the 70 AD event was about to come upon their heads. 
But they had also had, interestingly, some warnings, even during the days of Jesus about this, right? When did he go to Jerusalem? Yes. And he yes. Yes. That's right. Good job, Diane. Yes. That's right. And not one stone should be left upon another in this place, right? And so we see that. And he mentions it again in when we do our parallel observations with the Gospels. We, um, we see where Jesus addresses their questions about the end of the age and so forth. But just before that, he mentions in each of those accounts also the fall of, of the uh, temple that was about to approach them. So that's in like in Matthew 24, the first couple of verses. Um, the one that Le you're speaking of is Leviticus 19. For those of you who want to go back and look at that, these are, these are warnings where Jesus said this temple is going to fall. But I don't think they really believed it. Do you? Do you think that they were really going, yeah, it's about to disappear? So when he makes this statement, he's really actually also, I'm not too sure if it's prophetic well, it has to be pro prophetic because it's still in the future. But yet he was only really quoting from Jesus himself. You know, Jesus had already told the, the disciples and uh, that he had probably heard of concerning this. So it's very interesting, the, 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 just kind of the immediate um, historical setting of things that were going on around these people and how it is that they would be receiving even the words that he was speaking to them. For us, this is all ancient n news. And we tend to drop in here and just kind of read right past that, that little phrase about the fact that what's becoming old and obsolete is about to disappear. And we just think, uh-huh, and we just keep moving. But can you imagine what they must have thought in that moment and, and how that would have impressed them? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. There was a double message, certainly. Yes, absolutely. That there, there is that part of the of the storyline too. There's a whole lot in there, actually, besides just the one point. But I, I'm, for me, it kind of just came to me as I was studying this and making my list on everything. When we got to the very end of that chapter eight and was making that point about that this was soon to disappear, the real reality of that was Jesus had just told them Himself that it was about to disappear, that there was not going to be one stone left upon another. And I'm not too sure if they fully embraced that. Certainly not those who, at this point now, where we're, t we're several years down the road now into um, the, the new church, Jesus has, has been crucified, has resurrected, and it's been, it's been probably 30 years, 25, 30 years approximately. So um, for them... You know, there's also, when there, whenever there's a kind of a delay in God doing things, you know, where he didn't just come in immediately and wipe that temple out in that moment, but there were some significant things that happened to let them know that that temple was a finished work, right? Yes? Yes. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
T- tell me what you think about um, in this book. We're all, you know, we're majoring on the how much better this new one is, but are there also an awful lot of nuances in here about how there's a comparison from the old to the new that d- that is constant with God that doesn't change? Have you all kind of picked up on that particular message as well? Where what I'm saying is the righteous uh, law of God has not changed. The moral law of God has not changed, right? Um, Would you say that at this point you've seen that God's dealing with his people also does not really change, although the, the, obviously the covenant is different and it is so much better, and we're going we're gonna to nail that down today. But, but at the same time, has God's, the way that God dealt with unrighteous behavior in the household of his faith in the Old Testament, do we not see that he's making uh, it known to us and clear to us that in the new covenant there's also a standard by which God expects us to live and that if we don't what what is it that he said to us in chapter six was going to be a consequence for those who have this knowledge who know him have been enlightened but yet then are um, unrepentant and willfully in sin and they've been warned and they've been rebuked and they and they continue to stay there what is the warning The land is going to be burned, right? And when land is burned, we know that what he's saying about that is, is or potentially, I don't want to be super dogmatic because there's some who don't agree on this point, but in my understanding of this, when when a farmer burns his land, is it to destroy the land? No, it's to do what for it? to renew it, to prepare it for a future growing season, right? A, a new crop to rid it of the weeds and the thorns and the thistles, correct? Of, it, of the pests that have invaded. And in doing that, it, it, real, it truly gives nutrition, actually, to that land. It strengthens it. And later, I think that, that we're going to come to a passage in 12 where we're going to see what God really means by that imagery in, in chapter 6, where that discipline it actually will reap a harvest of righteousness for those who will be disciplined. Um, but he's literally telling us that in the old, in chapter 3, he said, in the old, those who were unbelieving and were disobedient, what happened to them concerning their entering of the land? They did not enter the land. They fell in the wilderness. And he's, and, and although he's not, tr- I don't think that the message in that is to say whether that person's a believer or not a believer. I think what it's really trying to say in there is this is how God, this is how God deals with people who are disobedient and unbelieving. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. He's, he's, he's handling the, the, um, the issue of obedience, outward obedience, that it measure up or, or reflect appropriately this relationship you claim to have. If you have a confession of Jesus, but you're walking in a way that doesn't line up with that, then what he has shown us in this book so far is that that will be dealt with. And it was dealt with in the old under the old system, and guess what? He will still deal with it in the new. That's kind of a revelation, don't you think, for the church to hear today? 
I mean, they don't seem to, we don't seem to really think or take seriously that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And although he is merciful and he's totally forgiving in this, in this new thing that we have, this new covenant, yet still, does that mean he's apathetic about you and I as his children openly walking in sin and bringing him to public shame? He is still holy. So in this book, I think, you know, as I was, you know, pondering on this to answer the, the question that came to me by email, I was thinking, you know, this is an amazing book of really putting our feet to the fire of what do you believe is true about salvation? What do you believe is true about God's holy righteousness and how he deals with sinners, whether they're saved or unsaved? Does he deal with sin? And what is his expectation of his church? Remember, there's a verse in the Old Testament that says that, that judgment begins at the household of faith. or begins at the, t- at the temple. And when we did uh, Ezekiel, we saw that, that he began his judgment at the temple first and then worked his way out into the people and into the land. But first at the house of God's people, those who are most accountable, those who have the most knowledge, those who have the most insight, those who have the greater burden of responsibility because when you put your jacket on that says I belong to Jesus and you go out into the world and live any way you want you are bringing shame to his name how is that going to be dealt with in this new thing this new economy of covenant is is it whatever you want sin all the more may it never be that's right (laughs) That's exactly what Paul had to say about it, right? So it, it, this is, a, this is a, a book that has both a better than st- a message, but there's also, I think, a subliminal message that says that God is the same. He's the same God. So, so don't think that you are without responsibility and that you will never receive the discipline of the Lord if you choose to walk in willful disobedience. And I think it's a part of the gospel message that we really do not convey well, particularly when we're trying to bring people into, into faith. The, the passages of Scripture that talk about, uh, remember to count the cost. You know, if you're going to enter into this faith with, with Jesus, there's a cost, and there is a cost. It's, it's not to say that, that anything you do gets you in, but to understand that when you are in this faith walk with God, there's a responsibility, is an important quality uh, aspect of our faith uh, uh, in Jesus Christ that um, I just think we, we tend to just kind of sweep it under the carpet because we just, it's all by grace. It's all by grace. It's all by grace, which is true. <laughs> but that does not mean that God will not hold us accountable to discipline us when he so chooses, right? And hopefully we discipline ourselves. That's what the calling of this book is about. This book is a word of exhortation. Okay, so let's get started by simply a quick review. We have um, concerning our author, unknown, right? The recipients, who are they? I've written it up there so it's pretty easy to read. (laughs) 
holy brethren, right? And so when he's making this address, it is a congregational address. I do think that's a quality of this book that's an important factor because always within a congregation, there is always the possibility of some amongst them who have not actually come fully into this faith, right, that are that are being certainly exposed and fully and fully being given the knowledge of God, but they but it doesn't necessarily mean that they have entered into the rest, which is what chapter three and four addresses, right? Um, uh, w- we also know that they are Hebrews, and we know that by the major subjects that come up, right? So tell me some of the subjects that we've seen. The uh, the subject of the priesthood. There's the temple is mentioned on the temple services that are brought up. Uh, sacrifices comes up later, but yes. The subject of covenant. God's oath, right? All right, so by that, by the, the, that and many others like it, the covenant and the, oh, the temple and the, and the sacrifices and so forth, all those things show us that this is, um, the law is also another thing that gets brought up, right? So all those things. Now, there's one more thing then that I think really contributes greatly to understanding that th- these are definitely Hebrews. What keeps being quoted, <laughs> The Old Testament quotes in this are so heavy. Old Testament quotes um, absolutely permeate this book everywhere. It, it's, when he is talking to this particular audience, every time he makes a point, he reaches out of his, his storage of knowledge about the Old Testament and he lays it before his audience as his, as his credential, as his validation, as his explanation, as his um, affirming that what he's saying is true, right? He doesn't just he doesn't just throw things out and then can keep moving. He stops and he and he quotes to them something from their own Old Testament scriptures that they would be familiar with or should be familiar with, right? And then he brings that forward as his point of of bringing them on board with the the things that he's saying because it's pretty easy for him to potentially be speaking to them on any one of these subjects and for them to go well you know I'm not sure I remember that or where where was you know have you had that kind of thing happen even to yourself when you're thinking you're trying to remember what it is that you know and then he start then he quotes someone will quote a scripture and you'll go oh yeah that's right I remember that now right excuse me so that is exactly what No, it's interesting. You know that these people had a lot of scripture memorized, or they were supposed to. And yet there was there was a problem right there. There, there was a purpose for writing, and it was a word of exhortation. And the reason he had to write this word of exhortation is because there was a problem, right, with these people. What was the problem? Not growing. They had remained babes. Um, immature in their knowledge, right? Now, here's where I thought it was kind of interesting because um, let me see if I can find this real quick. Um, 
they have re- remained spiritually immature, and this immaturity is such that it could lead to them falling away, right? Because they've, be, they've been sluggish. And yet he also opened it up by saying there's an expectation that by now they should have been teachers, correct? And when you think about the things that, that they should have known, the author really is going to, once he finishes rebuking them about how they've um, been irresponsible, basically, and um, undisciplined in growing in their knowledge. He then goes on, he picks back up with the subject that he left off with, right? So he starts in chapter 5, he mentions Jesus, and Jesus is uh, uh, introduced, basically, as something which is better in that chapter, better than what? Or, or what is the comparison being made there in chapter 5? Do you remember? No, that's way back in 2. about the high priesthood and then he makes a comparison that Jesus is a high priest according to what the order of Melchizedek and at that point when he mentions Melchizedek he makes this pause because all of a sudden in his mind he's going "Uh uh-oh uh-oh I they're not going to like this why not why is why is Jesus being their priest a problem for these Jews potentially he's what he is not a Levite. Now, interestingly, they had come into faith. They had accepted Jesus had come and was to be their king, that he fulfilled the, the kingly prophecies through the tribe of Judah from the lineage of David. Um, and they had put their faith on him, and yet when it came to taking it to the next step, which is the priesthood also, because of all, of all the things that Israel had been given, these were all pictures, right? These were all in, they, they all portrayed some, some quality of relationship with God through these services, through these ceremonies, through these traditions, all the things that they had been given. Everything was to point them to understand Jesus when he came. The fulfillment of what God's relationship with them was going to be about was all through these pictures of the temple and, so, and their services. But yet they hadn't gone to that next step. Isn't that interesting? They had gone to a certain place with the, the kinghood and the tribe of Judah, but apparently they hadn't gone to that next step. This came to my mind. The author of Hebrews, he's going to now teach what these believers should have already known and their curiosity about that problem of Jesus being their priest. What do you think? Shouldn't they have gone... Wait a minute. How's that possible? Shouldn't one of them in the congregation have gone, "Oh yeah, that's that's not that's not going to work." How co- well, wait a minute. Okay, if he is and and I believe he is because he is the he is the king, he is the son of God. Okay, so if he's the son of God, then how is he also our priest because those are two different family bloodlines. These people should have by this many years of passing Someone in there should have said, you know, I think I need to check that out. I wonder if I could figure out how this all works. I know it does. I just need to figure it out. Isn't that kind of what we're all doing here in this class today? We're all going, well, I know it can't mean this, but it means something, right? And, it, and so I've got to figure it out. And that requires some discipline on our part to study and to, and to reason and to spend the time to do it, to not be sluggish, Right? Yes. And that's talked about the 
Yes, I would say absolutely yes. A and th the idea of, you know, the, the, the designed roles that God gave man from the beginning in the garden have been designed roles from, you know, man, when Adam and Eve were put in the garden, immediately Adam's job was to be the priest, the provider, and the protector. And Eve's role was to be the helpmate, the child bearer, and... Um, and the supporter then to the husband through through the things that she would do in the home and so forth. So these design roles have been around from beginning. So the idea of him being the, the, the priest over his home came right in the Garden of Eden because who did God hold responsible ultimately for the sin of them eating of the tree that they were told not to eat of? Adam. Because why? God's design role had already been put in place right from the Garden of Eden. So did they understand that principle of the, the man being the head of the house? And as the head of the house, he was the priest and the, you know, that overseer spiritually? Yes. I think they understood it far better than we understand it today. Most Christians today do not understand that. And sadly, most men do not understand their high calling they have as the spiritual leader of their home. That, you know, they can... They, are happy if you know, everybody will just do their own thing. They don't feel that they have a personal responsibility in that. But God will hold them accountable. Whether they understand that or not, they are, they are responsible. That is God's design role for them. So the answer is yes. I don't know. You know, this is really... Where Hebrews is so significantly challenging is because I don't think they have even considered it. I don't think they've gone to that place. It's just, I th honestly, Carrie, I think it is just like what has gone on in this particular book. These people have come into their faith. They've done so uh, initially with a great deal of zeal and a great deal of anticipation of joy and joy knowing that they are now forgiven, they get that part of it, knowing that they are now going to, you know, be in the presence of God through this new relationship. But beyond this, the immediate, this is what I get out of it, they didn't go to the next step of what is my responsibility in it. And so they've never grown to know those things. They don't feel that they're important because it doesn't matter. It'll all wash out in the end. I'm saved. That's all that matters to me. That's kind of how a lot of people live their Christian faith walk. So they don't challenge themselves to be uh, prepared to give a, a reason or a defense for their faith in season and out of season. As people come to them and want to have conversation to them about Jesus, they can't even explain beyond the most rudimentary things, which is what this author has just said of them, you, you, you know, you have these elementary things, but you've not matured. You need to move on to the next level. 
uh, and they had not done that. And I think that is the same problem. And so in, in that point, Carrie, that is exactly why I think that this book is challenging as it is and as uncomfortable as some of the points are for us to try to work through. It's an important book to study because the principles in here are those real uh, deep truths about relationship with God who God intends to be for us and to us and in us and through us and f in the future for us. And there are so many points of, of um, doctrine in here that are deep meat. And it challenges you to take it down to, to a, a base point of saying, okay, so what do I believe is true about this point concerning my salvation? And then move to the next point. So now what do I think about this point concerning salvation? And then take it all back and look at what has he said in here concerning that. You know, the high, the high end of this is it's obvious to see that what this author is doing is saying, in Jesus, it's better, better than what you had before. We can see that without a lot of deep look, right? But when it comes to some of those finer points, and that's what this author is saying about this particular audience, he's saying you've not disciplined yourself because you haven't studied. I want to talk to you about how Jesus can be your high priest, and he is your high priest, and he did so according to the order of Melchizedek, but I can't even do it because I don't think you even have enough basis of your knowledge of the word of God because you've not trained yourself in it. You've not... You've not loved God's word and studied God's word and meditated on it, you've not torn it apart and tackled all the big questions and come back to see how it all fits together. You've just not done that. And for that reason, you're baby still. You're back on the, on the milk of the word. And, and I want you to grow up in your faith because there's going to come a day when all these old things are going to pass away and you're going to have, you're, there you are going to be standing and you have to be able to understand why is it okay that the temple's gone and that the priesthood is gone. And for them, that was huge. For you and I, we need to know why is there only one way to God? Why is it not an acceptable way under Islam or or under Buddha, or under any of these other kinds of um, mystical religions that are out there. Why is that not okay? So those are the challenges we have to try to tackle with and understand. They, in their time, they were tackling with the, the temple itself. For you and I, too, we need to understand, since the root of our, of our faith system is founded in Judaism, according to Romans 11, that's the root of where we come from. We need to understand where we came from. I'm really excited because as it turns out, we are going to be going from um, uh, Hebrews pretty soon. We're going to be going back through. I can't remember how when we started. Do you remember, Lois, when we start doing the Old Testament books? Well, in, huh? Yeah, when are we going to go back and start doing Old Testament books in our in, in January? Okay, so in, when we finish this, we'll have a break, and then in January we're going to come back. We're going to start doing some Old Testament research and studies. That's where our studies are going to be is a lot of these Old Testament books. And a lot of times you hear in the church today, well, you know, that's just the Old Testament, you know. 
But like what Carol mentioned earlier, I mean, this is the foundation. This is where it all began. And all those pictures and imageries have real meaning and depth for us. And for us to just, to not, to not want to know, and that's kind of, think, what this author is saying is, you know, you've had plenty of time. What is going on with you guys? Weren't, weren't you curious? Haven't you been interested in knowing how Jesus is these things to you? And th these people had not. And so he's, but, but I love the fact that he says, okay, fine. But I'm going to go on and tell you anyway. And so he picks it back up and he begins this process. Okay, so let's do this first. Let's start with this timeline a little bit. I want to start. We know that we have got mention of Abraham, so we'll start with Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The next major person that comes along for us in this particular book is who? Moses. And he gives us the law right, at Mount Sinai. That's at about 1,200. I'm really rounding these, you guys, so don't, don't take me, you know, don't lock me in, but about 1,200 B.C., okay? Uh, so we get from Moses, we get the law, and we get the tabernacle, correct? And the old, the, the, uh, which is the, the law, which is a covenant, the old covenant, right? When you speak about the tabernacle, I just want to, I'm going to give, I like to do visuals. So here's my tabernacle. And what was in that tabernacle? What was that tabernacle about? Okay, very much, exactly. So we see that in Hebrews, it explains to us that this tabernacle is that which exists in the heavenlies. Within the tabernacle, it was broken into parts, right? There was in this holy of holies. What was in the holy of holies? The Ark of the Covenant, right? And what, what, what or who rested upon the Ark of the Covenant? The cherubs were on each side, but who, who rested? What was the pillar of light and the, the, the smoke or the cloud about? It was the glory of God, right? So in this tabernacle, we have the glory of God, the presence of God in the midst of Israel at that time in, in, in the nation, correct? Now, when they leave, when Moses uh, dies and Joshua comes on the scene, and we do have Joshua in this, in this book, so let's put him in there. Who comes after Joshua when he gets into the land? Is who? King who? Our king. Well, yeah, there was Saul first, and, and then came David, because David, I'm trying to pick up on the names that we are seeing in the book of Hebrews. So let's just try to focus on those little guys, okay? So we have David next, correct? I think that's an important one to do. Now, when, um, after David comes Solomon, well, what does Solomon build? That temple. Okay, that's our first temple. So let's put our first temple here. Okay, first temple. And David, uh, this is around 960 B.C. That's a, also a, a real general time frame. But we have the ark is placed in the temple. The ark of the covenant goes into the temple at this point. And what do we know is also present in that temple? What is this? The glory of God. Right? So we have God's glory present in that first temple. 
I just, I love these visualizations because it really helps me keep that perspective as I go through. So I'm putting these shiny little, you know, zigzaggy things to show you that God's glory was present in that temple at that time. Now, we've studied Ezekiel, so we know if something happened during that time too when they were on the land, what happened? The glory ended up departing because Israel did what? They disobeyed God. They broke the covenant, right? Now tell me again, what is the ark called? Ark of the covenant. Very interesting. The ark of the covenant, which holds the covenant, and they have broken the covenant. And what happens to God's glory? He departs, okay? So God's, God's glory has departed, okay? Glory departs. going to be, I think, a good visual when we get this all done. So now, what was established back here at Mount Sinai besides the law given in the tabernacle? There was another significant thing established, the Levitical priesthood. Okay, let's put on here. Levitical priesthood. Okay, so I'm just kind of putting that to let you understand that that was established at the time of Moses. Now, who, who was it that we saw this week uh, and also the week before? Who did Abraham encounter that we're now looking at as a, as a um, comparison with Jesus? Melchizedek. Now, isn't that interesting? So we got Melchizedek back here. Melchizedek meets Abraham all the way back here. We have the Levitical priesthood established. We have now a temple established. God is live is his glory is present within his temple, but now God's glory departs because of their sin, right? Now we have, I'm just going to put on here Daniel, because we've we've all studied that one so many times. We have Daniel under in the Babylonian cap captivity. Then after Babylon is what? I know, this is really digging deep. Medo-Persia. And then what? Greece. Good. And then Rome. So with Rome, then we have the cross, the days of Jesus' uh, um, crucifixion. What has happened then when, when uh, Daniel and his people are taken in captivity? What has happened to the temple? Okay. Right. The Ark and Temple Articles are carried away. Now, we do not know from this point in history on whatever happened to the Ark of the Covenant. It's never really mentioned. I did, I did a bit of research on that this week. I Googled the Ark of the Covenant and so forth. And the interesting thing is in Scripture, it's never really mentioned again except for um, one time, and it's more of a, it was a command, I think it was Josiah commanded that the ark be brought back and be put into this new temple when it gets built. But, but there's no ceremony dis demonstrated. In other words, it's almost like he said, I want this done, but, it, but it, then it doesn't happen. Because it seems that it never shows up. The ark never shows up again. And according to the Hebrew records, um, 
there's really no record at all of it. And with something as significantly important to them as the Ark of the Covenant, there should be a lot of grandiose ceremony around it. But it just simply disappears. It's gone. And I've been pondering on this a lot. What do you think? Why would the Ark of the Covenant, after that first temple, when they're taken out of their land, where they had been promised that God would be for them his, their God, and he would be present with them, but because of their disobedience, God, God departs and allows them to then go into captivity outside of their land. Why does the Ark of the Covenant disappear? Okay, that's that's one very good point. The fact, the point is that he had a, he had something better in store for them, right? Because what has he promised at this point? Who who has made some prophetic uh, utterances that we looked at this week? Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, right? And these were these were people who were back here. Ezekiel, let's see, who was first? It was Jeremiah first. And then Ezekiel. And these two prophets were profiting, prophesying during the days when they were still on the land. And, and they were prophesying about a new covenant to come, right? And about a new priesthood. A new priesthood and covenant is prophesied. Today, yes. Yes, we're not there yet, but yes. We're, go we're going there, though, Carol, so that's exactly right. Because the, the point is, I think, visually to see this is so awesome because what you see is the glory was given to them to show them that God was present with them, living in the midst of his people, amongst them and in their midst, right? It came to the temple, and it was, in again, in the heart of the land of God's people. And when they disobeyed him, however, God showed his displeasure. They had broken their covenant. And, and this is something I just wanted to, to kind of bring out because it kind of hit me all of a sudden this week when I was looking at this. Well, the Ark of the Covenant disappears from the pages, right? And we just don't really know where it is. We don't know. We just simply don't know. But I thought to myself, well, interesting. They broke the covenant. Why would they even need the Ark of the Covenant if they broke it? And God's glory had departed, right? Now, they still have the temple, though. This is very interesting. And this was the part that I've, I've always kind of struggled with. Yeah, but they had their temple, and they were still performing the sacrifices, and the, and the high priests were still going within the, uh, the veil or within the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood. What were they sprinkling it on? What mercy seat? The ark is gone. And I always thought that was interesting. It's just a little tidbit. But it, nonetheless, the procedure was still followed. And they did so all the way through till the days of Jesus. So they were still going in there, and they were still doing exactly as God commanded them, within the Holy of Holies, understanding that through the imagery, they were entering into the presence of God, and they were sprinkling. And I thought to myself, well, maybe the ark was there, and we just don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows, right? 
Yes. The old people were crying. Yes, they and were. They were crying and mourning because of this new king and the fact that it was a woman. That's exactly right. There was all kinds of issues that had gone on. But this ark of the t- this ark, this temple had been destroyed, but then when the, when in the Medo-Persia time, they went back in and they built another temple. So now we have the second temple. And it's where they worshiped all the way through to the days of Christ. At what point does this temple then get destroyed? 70 AD. That temple is destroyed. But what has happened before the temple is destroyed? Well, this is Herod's temple. This is it. Herod's temple. We call it that. It's Zerubbabel's temple and Ezra's temple, right? Those people. Yep. Yes. There were all kinds of, this is one of my points is that even, you know, if you go all back to the purity of this tabernacle, but everything that progressively happened after that, it became a little bit less than what it was. The simplicity of that temple that, or that uh, tabernacle that God provided for the people, the humbleness of, of uh the picture of it, really, the humility that it would bring to the people, the simplicity, the purity of, of approaching God in that place, the, the absolute, do you remember how strict God was concerning how they must follow everything, even the priesthood? What happened to the priests who came in and broke uh, ranks, basically, and tried to usurp God's plan of who was going to be the priest and who would perform before it? They all died, right? Uh-huh. That's right. 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 Interesting is. Yes. Yes. So th- this is what we were. Uh, Carrie had said, "Well, or or was it Carol? But the w- the glory had departed here. But when does the glory return?" It returns to the church, right, by the power of the Holy Spirit in this new covenant that God promised all the way back here with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, while they were still on their land, they were talking about a new priesthood to come and a new covenant that was going to come that was going to be better then. So perspective-wise, it's really interesting just to see where these things are, that these were promised. The other thing is David himself was making prophetic statements concerning these things that were going to happen and come, right? He spoke of Jesus in Psalm 110, according to the order of Melchizedek, that the, the Son, that the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, that through him would, that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But guess what? These people didn't understand that. Either they had forgotten about what Jeremiah had said, what David had said, what Ezekiel had said, what Isaiah had said. They had forgotten all these prophecies. Or they just hadn't researched it and put it all together. So this author now is taking them and saying, look, now you need to understand how Jesus is your great high priest, how he is better than the the priesthood that you currently have. 
and, and he's warning them that this priesthood is soon to be disappearing. Will soon disappear. According to Hebrews, was it 8, like verse 30 or no, 18? It's at the end of the, of the chapter 8. 13, thank you. It will soon disappear, was the statement he made. So he's speaking, Hebrews is being written here, the book of Hebrews. He speaks about that this is soon going to disappear. It's still standing, however, at the time that he's speaking of this. And I just think visually when you see that, it's like, oh, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, in the temple then, in this second temple we have, it's Herod's temple, we have no glory. We do have some of the articles have been returned. Which means um, they would have had to remake some of the things that they had lost, probably through uh, the pillaging of these various kings who took over. Um, we do know that the temple was rebuilt at God's command. Just so that you understand that that, that was not just man stepping in there, but he, ca he gave a prophecy through Ezra. You can go and look at it in 513 to 15, just if you're curious about that, where uh, there's a statement there that God is the one who, uh, oh, and also in 614, you can look at there. Um, also, one of the things I do know also is the, the book of the law, it was, it was present because who, what did Ezra and Nehemiah and others read from? the book of the law. Who, who was it? Josiah found a book of the law, right? And he, in it, he says, you need, to re, you need to rebuild. You need to put these things back in order. You need to cleanse and reset this up. So the book of the law is there. Is, it is present. Um, I'll put Nehemiah 8, just 1 and 2. Interesting, too, just a little side note just for fun. During the Second Temple era, the Sanhedrin was expanded from 70 to 120. Just shows you one of the things that they did that kind of corrupted things, changed things a little bit. It initially, God had said, set, you know, set aside the 70 who would be the overseers and to help Moses, right? And at this point, they, they expanded it to 120. Now, why, I don't know, except that they had grown, maybe, just exponentially had gotten bigger. But we do know the priesthood becomes very corrupt during that time. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Probably not. It's talking about the millennial, yes. 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 Isn't that interesting? I did read that, so I, I, re I knew exactly what you're talking about. And since it was speaking about the millennial kingdom time um, prophetically, I thought that I did, it still didn't really address during 
the second temple era. It didn't really give us a lot of insight about the ark, but it did say very specifically that at the time when the when there's a millennial kingdom, which is going to come way down here somewhere, that they will that by, by the word of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says they will they won't even consider the ark of the covenant anymore. They won't think of it or long for it or desire it. Interesting. Well, and that is what the commentaries say. The comment, you hit it right on the head. That's exactly what the, a lot of the commentaries say, that by the statement of Jeremiah, Jeremiah implies that it's going to go missing and it will remain missing. And that by, when they come and rebuild, they won't even miss it anymore. So, it, but th of course, that's a long ways down the road yet. But what are we, what, yet what are we doing to this very day? We're hunting for the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> We're still hunting for that little guy. <laughs> okay, so I just felt like this really helped me with this Levitical priesthood. It shows us here. We have, um, we have the new priesthood is promised here, right? So it's afterwards, per pers perspective-wise. We have Melchizedek, his priesthood is introduced back here. So that just kind of gave me some perspective on where these, where these things were and positionally on the timeline. And when, when Jeremiah and Ezekiel and David were all speaking about a new priesthood and a new covenant, um, uh, this was after the first covenant had been established and they had been in this for quite a long time. But they spoke about something in the future that would occur. So that kind of gives you just a good visual, I think. And it, for me, that, that is always a helpful little tool. Okay, now we are ready to just dive into, pardon? No, okay. Okay, now we're ready to dive into our, our work here for this week. So now what we're going to look at is the pre, the, everything about the priesthood. Oh, that's a nice one. Nice marker. Priesthood on the whole. We're going to start all the way back in chapter 5. And what I think I decided the best way to handle this is by simply going through paragraph sections. So if you will just open your, your observation worksheets to chapter 5. We're going to look in chapter 5 and verses 1 to 4. How We're going to look at how the Christ qualifies as a priest. Because that is the issue for these people right? They understand him as their king because he comes from the line of Judah. He is of the bloodline of David. They, they are all good with that, but apparently there's a problem with them understanding about his priesthood. So this author is going to clarify that for them. Now, um, the first thing he does, which I think is really cool, is in the opening of chapter 5, he spends the first four verses giving qualifying markers for a priest, right? So he says in 1 to 4, uh, the most important was that Aaron was appointed, right? Aaron was appointed. So that priest had to be appointed. That was the first point. Um, but what were some of the other little points that he then goes on and explains about Jesus, how he is like that? What, what else is said in verse uh, 1? He's taken from among men. So first and foremost, he's taken from among men. Why is him being taken from among men an important thing in verse 2? Because why? If he's a man, then he can do what? He can deal gently with them. 
basically because that that uh, that priest being himself a man can understand man's infirmities, man's temptations, man's sin, man's struggle, right? So he's he, he is taken from among men, and because he's taken from among men, he can deal gently with him because he also is beset with weaknesses. That's that earthly one, right? And then the next thing he says about him, though, is that concerning that position, what can he not do? He can't take the honor to himself. So he, it has to be an assignment by, the, by God himself. So that's in 1 to 4. Uh, taken from among men. He uh, understands. The infirmities of men, right? The sin and so forth. And he cannot take it to himself. Cannot take priesthood to himself. Okay, so now the next thing we see is in five verses, um, verses five. Let's see how many verses it covers. Five and six. What did we learn then, according to this author, what did we learn about Jesus then? Yeah, that he was. So this is the, these are the qualifications here. Or the requirements, right? Of a priest. And we see, well, Jesus was appointed by God. Aaron was appointed by God. I guess we should put that point up there too, right? That it's, that it's, we're not just talking about appointed by anybody, but that it was a God appointment. So he was appointed. Well, Jesus was appointed by God. And then what does this author do in order to validate that? He quotes scripture. He, quote, he quotes Psalm 2 and he quotes Psalm 110, right? So then in the next section, let's look at 5, uh, 7 to 9. Now, the first time we went through this, I actually did 7 all the way through 10. But what I realized when I did it this way by looking at how Jesus qualifies and I break it down, I actually took verse 10 and made it a separate title. So, so just so you know that. But in 7 to 9, what do we see uh, what makes Jesus qualify? That's right. By what he suffered, right? So Jesus was made perfect in what he suffered when... In the days of his flesh. Isn't that interesting? So it kind of almost hits both things, that he came from among men and that he understands. He was appointed, and now here it says he was made. So Jesus was made perfect. In what he suffered. In the days of his flesh. That's what makes him qualify. Isn't that interesting? You know, for us, sometimes we read these points, and we don't think they're that significant. But these were actually qualifiers. And for this particular audience, they're wanting to know what makes Jesus qualify to be a high priest. Well, because he took on flesh, 
and in his flesh he suffered temptations. However, when he suffered temptations, what made him distinctly better than them? He did so without sin. You have to, you have to move forward, or, or actually backward in chapter 4. There's a verse there that says, He experienced temptation and can sympathize with our weaknesses, yet he did so without sin. So you can make, you can make a backup unto verse 4 on that. But he, uh, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications for us with loud crying and tears. Now, what's the point to him mentioning his crying and tears? and lifting up supplication on our behalf. What does a priest do? That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, what was one of the symbols that the priest wore when he went before the Lord? Do you remember the, that breastplate? And what was on the breastplate? Stones and for every tribe. And so in essence, what was the imagery of that? What did the priest do when he walked them before the Lord with this breastplate with the stones on it? Isn't that cool? Isn't that the coolest? I just love that picture because when you translate that to Jesus, what does that say? He carries us on his heart. He bears us on his heart before the presence of God the Father. And, he, and in this case, it talks about him Offering up supplications and prayers with, with loud crying. Now, when was it that Jesus had this, this moment of loud crying and weeping in the Garden of, of Gethsemane just before he went to the cross? Now, I would venture to say I bet there were a lot of times when he did this. But there is one recorded for us that's very significant, and that was just before his death. So Jesus acted on behalf of us as a high priest does, bearing us on his heart, going before the Father, crying out, and, and in his moment of suffering, because what was he, how was he suffering? In what way was he suffering or, or what was about to happen? He was about to go to the cross. If that's not a heavy-hearted suffering, <laughs> I don't know what is. And so he, he talks about him crying with loud tears and loud crying before the Lord on our behalf. So he has become then a high priest. He qualifies to be a high priest because he did suffer. He suffered, however, without sinning, but he suffered. And so he can identify with us. He was taken from among men. He came in flesh and he did this. So this is what, for a Jew, this is significant. This is how he qualifies to be the high priest for them. He was made perfect in what he suffered in the days of his flesh. So he was taken from among men. And he understands the infirmities of men. And he was appointed. And he did not take it to himself. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. There are, let's see, when, um, well, Daniel does, does it definitely, but I would, was thinking, does it Moses, it shows Moses, shows Aaron doing it also, where he puts the breastplate upon him and it talks about him going before the Lord and, and then he, and I think there are recorded prayers. 
and went before them and interceded on behalf of them. That's exact. That's a very good point. Remember when God was going to destroy them all? So there are pictures of it. They're just they're not. They don't use that terminology that He goes before them and cries out, you know, in tears and supplications. But He does it. Okay. So you'd have to look for the demonstrations of it. Okay. All right, so we see Aaron was appointed, Jesus was appointed, and Jesus was made perfect in what he suffered. So in that point, one, two, three, you got one, two, three. He filled, fulfilled them all. Isn't that kind of cool the way he did that? Then the last one, though, in 10 was a, another one that was really good because that one was the most specific one that I think needs to be addressed for these people because, yes, he qualifies to be a priest because he came in flesh and he did these things. He suffered. He, un he understands. But how was he made priest? What was his designation according to verse 10? According to the order of Melchizedek, okay? And this would have been a question for them. He was designated... High priest, according to order of Melchizedek. Okay, so that is the last point that that for them now comes the the contrast point or the the difficulty point because they understand the Levitical thing, but they didn't understand the Melchizedek thing, right? So they understood according to the order of Aaron that a priest qualified. But how does this Jesus qualify? Well, he says at this point he concludes, after he makes sure they understand the first three points, he, he hits, targets them perfectly. Then the last one he says, but it's not, uh, not according to Aaron, it's according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he's going to explain that later after he spends a period of time rebuking them. For not having, number one, looked all this up, not being interested enough to, to try to work through this up to this point. They've had all these years. Why weren't they curious? Why had they not researched this th for themselves? Uh, you know, I think to, my, to myself, I'd be going, I think I would have been going, no, I need some parchments on hand because i got to look for this stuff. I would have been curious, but apparently they weren't. And he's challenging them on that. You should have figured this out by now, and you should be teachers of this by now, but you're not. So he, he rebukes. There's a rebuke in here about immaturity. And then he picks up in chapter 6, at the end of chapter 16, in verses 19 and 20, and he makes one more point now. So he, after he rebukes them, he comes right back to his subject now. And so now we're back to the subject, and this is where we picked up on our homework the last couple of weeks, in particular this last week, where we're looking to see how is Jesus better than their old system. That's going to be our major emphasis when we, on what we do up here. But there's also the comparative qualities that you can look for too as you move through this all right at this point he foresees a confusion that he knows has to be further ex explained because of an obvious objection on the basis of Jesus's bloodline uh, this is when this author is disturbed about their immaturity and knowledge in the word of God Jesus was called priest according to the order of Melchizedek and they apparently did not understand that nor the importance of the record of Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. Apparently, that would have been another thing. They, they either had forgotten about that encounter with Melchizedek, that Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek, they'd just forgotten about it, or they just weren't putting 
this piece with that piece. I got to tell you, as a student of God's word, there's a lot of times I've done that myself. I just didn't put all the pieces together until someone brought it to my attention. So I can't, I can't totally blame them on all, all levels. But this author is saying, by now, you should have considered these things and tried to figure this out, right? Um, some are, huh? Well, that's it. I mean, it wasn't like just that. The, well, what's interesting is they may not have understood the Melchizedek encounter the record of that why did God put this this encounter with this man from who was a king right and this encounter with Melchizedek why is that put in God's record of the Septuagint of the record of the Pentateuch the law right Um, yeah and so sorry the Pentateuch so why is it in the Pentateuch why do they have that in their in their original writings well when David brings it up Later, they should have gone, oh, that's interesting. David mentioned that, didn't he? Somebody should have gone back and looked at that, but they never did. So it just kind of shows you where their thinking was. They were all on board with the, the lineage of, of the line of the tribe of Judah, but not they had not figured out this priesthood thing. Okay, so some are possibly in danger because of this, of drifting from their confession of Jesus uh, as their Christ and are tempted maybe to return back to their old temple services, right? Because it talks about him putting him putting Jesus to public shame in doing so. They are not realizing how much better this new way to God really is. They just had not figured it out. So now he spends a good deal of time rebuking them. When he closes chapter 6, he makes a, a fresh new statement about this particular one where you're actually seeing a contrast, how he is better. So what does he say in, in 6, 19, and 20? How is Jesus better? What is the statement given to us there? He doesn't make a better than statement, but he makes a statement that we now can see it's better. Okay, in, in the case of their priesthood, then who enters within the veil? Only their high priest. So here he says Jesus has entered within the veil for them. Hmm, that's not a good marker. Let me try another one. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, and he has done so according to the order of Melchizedek. It's really funny. And he does so, that's just my little statement, according to order of Melchizedek. Now, I think it's funny that he actually says it that way because it's like he brings them back to this subject. After he's had this break in here, then he brings them back to Melchizedek. And he says, Jesus has entered within the veil. He is your high priest, and he did so according to the order of Melchizedek and brings him back. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, one of the points he brings up as we go through this, the, and we will get there, but you're absolutely right. One of the points is that the 
by the prophecy itself, by the fact that God said to them there would be a new priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. What did God do in making that prophetic word that there would be, that when his, they knew they had a prophecy of a coming Messiah, right? Of the son to come. It was, we, and we looked in our, in our references and even in our cross-referencing and research at this covenant that God made with Abraham and Abraham was promised a seed, right? So they knew this seed was coming. They knew this Messiah was coming. And, they, and here now we, what we see is they also knew that he was going to come according to the order of Melchizedek. Interesting. By saying that in, the, in that prophetic word, what is he actually telling them ahead of time about the order of Aaron? It's going to go away. And, that what, and what else about it? Is it, is, it wasn't, well, it wasn't forever and it wasn't perfect. It was not that which brought perfection for those who were under it. it was, there was something inferior about it. It was weak. Well, really, the weakness was what? Was it the law itself that was weak? What does he say about that? But go back and look at that with me. I thought it was funny the way he, he makes the statement here. Um, it's in 7. Um, yes, I think it's where it's... No. Um, it's just before his quote. Let me see. He says... Could be an 8. Yeah, it's in 8. And uh, chapter 8, verse 7 and 8, he says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, in my mind, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, there was something wrong with the first covenant, right? And how does he say it then in verse 8, though? Is, does he tell you where the fault lies? For, for finding fault with them, not with it, with them. Who's the them? Did you, did you mark it on, as it with your key mark of some kind? The them is who? Israel. So it was with man that there was a problem. The, the covenant was perfectly fine. It was with man that there lied a problem. And so that's exactly what you're talking about there, that there was an understanding that the first one was not adequate. And there was a need for a second. And that all becomes really apparent when you start to consider why did Jesus, why did God himself prophetically say there was going to come something later? That was different. And through Ezekiel and Jeremiah, he even made it more clear, didn't he? Not, not only did he prophesy about the Christ saying that when the Christ came, he would come according to the order of Melchizedek as a priest. But with Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the whole chapter 8 is a big quote from, from uh, uh, Jeremiah and also really Ezekiel as well. But what is he saying in, in that particular passage? One day, what is God going to do? He's going to make a new covenant, and it's not going to be like the old covenant, right? It's going to be something better. Interesting that, that these people had apparently not really considered the fact that the prophecies about a new covenant coming meant that the old one was going to go away. But should they have really come to that conclusion? Should they have been surprised when these things began to be fulfilled, that when the seed came, 
who was going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order of Aaron, should they have been surprised when he came then that those things were going to be disappearing and, and passing away? When the temple fell, what should the church have done? Jumped for joy. Hallelujah. That obstacle is out of the way. Now the people will see that Jesus is the one that came. I remember my first visit to Israel. That was the, the first, one of the strong impressions that I left that country with. Um, I can remember before going that my view was how sad it is that God's temple is not there and how it's gone. And you know, I was really kind of pining for it, sort of. But when I got there, the reality of it hit me that, you know what? The fact that it's not here is like screaming from the mountaintops. It is finished. The, the Messiah has come. It's all done. You don't need that anymore. And so all of a sudden, my perspective of that empty, empty temple mountaintop totally changed. My perspective now was, hallelujah. Thank God that temple's gone. Because now that it's gone, the reality is if, if those who are refusing to put their faith on the Messiah who has come, they are doing so willfully and in disregard to what is blatantly before their face. They serve a God who's an all-powerful God who breathed, spoken word, and all was created. He is the sovereign of the universe. He, he is the omniscient, all-powerful God, and his temple is missing. Who do you think's in control of that? Right? It should just shout to the people, it, God's work is finished. Jesus is here. The Messiah, I promised, has come. Yes, yes. Yes, I think in he with Hebrews, would you not say that that's one of the strongest messages you're seeing in here is how important these pictorial things are of the old system? And it's one of the reasons it's so important for you and I even to go back and research the Old Testament, to study it, to understand all these things that we've just missed because we didn't live through it. It isn't our history. And for, for a lot of Christians in the New Testament, we think the Old Testament is just kind of obsolete. Well, certainly there are things about the old system that are obsolete, but they're, they're obsolete because they've been fulfilled. Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So although it's passed away in its usefulness and is no longer useful, it certainly, one of the, one uh, um, of these pastors I listened to this week was talking about the difference between how Paul approached the purpose for the temple and all of the, the, the symbolism in it and how this author approaches it. With Paul, he says it's a tutor that leads us to Christ and he talks about all the value and how it was good and it was all these great things. But this author's like, oh, but it's obsolete, it's passing away. He, he wants to get rid of it, and Paul is going, no, it was there for a reason, right? And so both are true, right? And yet they both had very different perspectives about the law. 
different audiences and different just different perspectives of, of what they were uh, trying to teach concerning it. And so I just think it's really interesting that that's also another way of seeing the difference between the author of this book and Paul and what he had to say in the book of Romans, for instance. Um, okay, so we've got he, he became, he entered within the veil and he, did, he does so according to the order of Melchizedek. So now he picks up in chapter 7. So 7 is where we spent, we spent a lot of time last week. Did we go through... Um, uh, title, titles for chapter 7, pa paragraph titles. Did we do that together? Okay, well, let's do that right now. And I may not get a lot written up here because I want to try to get through this in 30 minutes because we've got to do two chapters. But what we want to do is focus on how Jesus has fulfilled the priesthood according to what a Levitical mind or a, or a Jewish Hebrew mind would, would consider. So most importantly want to look at is the, the better than qualities, right? Okay, so we have, um, starting in chapter 7, verses 1 to 4, how do we see J Jesus portrayed there? What is the subject then that gets brought up at the end of 6 was Melchizedek. So how does he introduce Melchizedek to us in 1 to 3? Very interesting. How does that relate to Jesus? Is that a contrast to or something that's comparative? It's a comparative, right? So again, we're back to now this, I think, this, this little bit lower uh, level of, of emphasis, but the similarities or the sameness of God from the old to the new is brought up really in these first few verses where it speaks about Melchizedek um, and his encounter with Abraham and how Melchizedek is then portrayed to us. So Melchizedek is, by definition of his name, is what? King of righteousness and king of the king of peace. Now, isn't that interesting? We, I think we did a cross-reference in Isaiah. Someone brought that up earlier. What did we learn in that cross-reference uh, that really supports what's being said here about who Jesus is? Did Isaiah not portray him as the king of righteousness? He talked about something about a scepter and how he would rule in righteousness, right? Isn't that correct? I'm, I'm just vaguely. Yes. Um, he will have a throne, a righteous scepter, he, and he will rule in righteousness according to, and this is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. That was one of your cross-references. Um, what else do you see in verses 1 to 3? about Melchizedek and how does he compare with Christ? Yes. Okay, so now what happens is so we, we've made, now you're kind of making a little bit of a switch here, but this is good, that, that Abraham then, he's, he's, this author is trying to impress why it is that Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priests, right? So he starts by addressing really the patriarch of their faiths, right, who is Abraham. So he says about Abraham, he's even greater than Abraham, right? Why is he great? And how does he say, explain to them that he's greater than Abraham? Yeah, Abraham gave him tithes. And then he goes on to, just in case you don't know this, it's obvious that the greater, is, uh, that the lesser is blessed by the greater. So he, he implies the, the strength of what he's saying there. Um, what else do we learn? 
Okay. Okay, so who's made like who? Melchizedek is made like Jesus, not the other way around, right? And the, the idea of the, the word like in there is just saying that there are some similarities in this, right? That they are, can be comparative. Now, is it true that Melchizedek did not have a mother or a father? No, of course not. It's just simply not recorded. And by the fact that there is no recording of it, what does that do for Melchizedek? It, well, he, but now look on the timeline. Was the priesthood are instituted yet? See, this is an important thing about doing a, a timeline because by the timeline you go, oh, yeah, well, there wasn't even a priesthood established, and yet there was a priesthood apparently. There were priests for God Most High. It says in here very clearly he was priest of God Most High. Interesting. Do you remember when Abraham received his uh, covenant promise from God back in Genesis? He says, but uh, let it be known to you that for 430 years your people will go into captivity. And he says, why? For what? The fullness of the, gen of the, of the, um, the Amorites, the, Pez the Pezerites and the, you know, all those ites, has not yet been fulfilled. They had not come to their full measure of sin yet where God is finished dealing with them. Well, this is one of the little clues that shows you that there was still a measure of righteousness in the midst of those people at that time. It's why God delayed Abraham taking control and taking, coming in and taking that land yet. There was a man there named uh, Melchizedek, and he was their king. And he was, he was not only king, but he was priest of God most high. And by his very name, he was king of righteousness and king of peace. That is so awesome. That's just a great backdrop to that story. Uh -huh. Right, absolutely, and because he, he was only a man, but because there was no record, by, the vir by virtue of the Jewish-minded thinking, without a record, there is nothing there. Do you guys remember when we studied Ezra? Who did Ezra with me? Do you remember how we talked about going back? They were, uh, they were wanting to go back to the land to rebuild this temple here in the days of, of the, uh, Cyrus. And those who were going to go back with Ezra to rebuild had to produce records that they were of a certain family so that they could be the ones who would actually work with the temple itself because only those who came from the proper lineage were allowed to work the temple, had, were only ones allowed to touch the things of the temple. And so they had to produce records. So this whole idea is just really cool. So in this introduction here in, at the beginning of 7, he's showing that Melchizedek is actually greater than Abraham who they exalt up highly, but he also shows how Jesus has qualities that are similar to Melchizedek. And the, the strongest emphasis is place, placed upon his, his um, um, endless life, right? The idea of he has nor beginning uh, of days nor end of life because there was no record of it. That's why. There just was no record. 
Uh, so he was in that he was made like the Son of God. Okay, so one to f- in one to three, Melchizedek is shown to these this audience as being greater than Abraham. That's a significant point. Um, and then in four to ten, what do we see? Who else is Melchizedek greater than in four to ten? The, Le- the Levitical priesthood or the, Levi- the Levites themselves, right? See how observe how great this man is to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the cho- choicest spoils. And those indeed are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect from the people, right? But the one whose genealogy is not traced, who is that? Melchizedek. Um, he blessed the one who had the promises. And then he goes on, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in the case of mortal men, they receive tithes. But in the case of the one who receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, then what happens? Because um, Abraham blessed Melchizedek, this author works them through a process of reasoning that by virtue of them still being in the loins of Abraham, what? Those Levites actually also gave, gave tribute to, to this greater king, this greater priest. So the priests were giving tribute to the priest, the greater priest. Very interesting how he used a very Jewish way of thinking of things in order to bring them to that place of understanding that, that Melchizedek is actually greater than Abraham and he's greater than the, the Levites themselves. And this is positioning Jesus to then, in identifying with, with the order of Melchizedek, it's placing him or over who? over the Levites, over the Levitical priesthood. So then when you hit um, 11 to 17 of chapter 7, what happens? Pardon? That's right. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood order, right? Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now, I love in verse 11, what what is the contrast or the point that's brought out about that Levitical priesthood? That apparently it did not bring perfection for the people, right? That it it seemed to be short. There was another place... um, Later in verse 18, although it's, it's not in the same section that we're looking at, but in verse 18, he, he talks about that system being identified in two ways. What? Do, did you see it? Weak and useless. <laughs> I thought that was kind of rather direct when you're speaking about talking to a Jewish man about something that he considers so sacred. But he says, look, it was a, a, weak, a weaker system, and it was, it's because of its weakness and its uselessness to bring about perfection for those who worship through that system, there was a need for something greater. And the fact that God promised something greater and he prophesied something greater by the virtue of that alone you know know that it actually is going to be uh become obsolete all right so 11 to 17 melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the levitical priesthood because the levitical priesthood is not sufficient Okay, so he's just taking them through this process of reasoning these things out for themselves to see how it is possible for Jesus to do this for them and to be this for them. 
Any other points that you see in there that you thought were interesting? There you go. The change of priesthood, therefore, if the priesthood is going to change, because after all, how closely linked is the priesthood and the law? <laughs> they're want, they're want basically a united system. Matter of fact, I can remember way back when I first started studying about Mount Sinai and him giving them the law and so forth, and I was just studying, just learning kind of all these things first. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks when I realized that when God gave the law, he also gave the tabernacle and the, the priesthood system at the same time. Why? Because when he gave them the law, he knew they couldn't keep it. So he gave them a way to make atonement for the breaking of it. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. So these two are, are hooked at the hip, right? So in this author's reasoning, when he makes the Levitical priesthood a weak thing through which the people cannot really attain to perfection, he says, and consequently, if the priesthood is going to be abolished and done away with, then what happens to the covenant itself? It also has to be done away with. And then what does he quote? Yeah, he, he gives another quote about, about the, the new priesthood that was going to come in. So he validates what he's saying to them because I can guarantee you they are sitting in their chairs and they're doing this. Don't you, can't you just feel the tension in the room? Kind of like what we had last week, <laughs> right? When we hit a passage we're not so sure about and we're like going, just you better convince me, right? Well, these Jews are... We are sitting here, and we're just kind of going, yeah, 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 let's just move on. But those Jewish believers were like, you got to prove this to them. Their arms were crossed. Their toes were tapping. Their, their jaws are tight. And they're going, I don't know about this, you know, because this is their priesthood that, that, that God instituted that it was a holy. Think about their whole life system. Everything they did, their entire, their entire social system, how they operate as a people, how they breathe, how they prepare their meals, how they buy, how they how they uh, kill animals, what they do when blood is spilt, what they do uh, when a baby is born. I mean, every single quality is all tied into this system of Levitical laws. And so, for this man now, this author, to come in and say it's all done, it's all gone, it's passing away, it's not necessary anymore. Let me tell you why. So guess what he does for his power punch? Brings in scripture. He says, don't you remember when God said this? That Jesus, the, that the son, when he came, when the Christ, when he came, when the Messiah, when he came, that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? He would be your priest. Wow. I mean, really, you guys, we don't get the power of that, I don't think. But they're all going like this. And then when he says that, Maybe not everyone in the group, but there would be a lot of them going, oh, leaning forward a little bit in their chair. And now their arms are uncrossed because all of a sudden they're going, well, that's, that's right. You're right. It does say that. God did say that. I always wondered what he meant by that. How many of us have ever said that one? I always wondered what God meant when he said that. Now when we put the pieces together, this, this author is putting the pieces together for them. And they are all of a sudden, light bulbs are coming on for them. The excitement in the room for them when they were reading this message, not like us who are sitting here going, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, he's better than, he's better than. We're just trying to, you know, tick it off. But they had to be so excited. For some of them, particularly those who had a real hunger 
in their in their gut to really know more and had just not really been given more yet or or for whatever reason had been slothful well now they've had conviction because of the holy spirit they have been rebuked back here about their immaturity the conviction had come on them and now this author just says okay let's just move on i you, you know i'm not going to let you wall i don't want you to wallow in that conviction i want that conviction to now propel you into maturity let me take you to maturity and now he brings them the these points about how jesus qualifies for it and he is better than what they had before how the word and then he says it's the word of god god himself prophesied these things God told you guys that these things would happen. He told you a new covenant was coming. He told you that a new priesthood was coming. And if a new one's coming, what happens to the old? It has to be gone. So now all of a sudden, can't you just see how these people are all of a sudden going, ooh, ooh, I think he's right. Oh, my gosh, it did say that. This is really exciting. Oh, my gosh, what does that mean? (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. And so, so then in 18 to 22 of chapter 7, once he gives them that little scripture verse to support and, and, and give the, the strength of what he has said, its validity through what God himself said, then he goes on. For on the one hand, there is a set aside of a former commandment. So he's kind of going, yep. There is of setting aside of that. He says, but because of its weakness and its uselessness. He's saying, look, it, it was an inferior system. He says, but for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, there is what? A bringing in of a better hope. And now he's getting them all pumped. Can't you just see the room? They're going, woo, 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 go God. Yeah? <laughs> better, through which we draw near to God. Because Their point is their system is what allows them to draw near to God. It's the only system they've ever had to draw near to God. You and I cannot really understand that because we've always had the Spirit abiding in us. That's how we began our days. I think we take it for granted. We do not understand the treasure that we have within us of the presence, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, complete access to the Father 24-7 to be able to speak to him, to commune with him, to praise him, to rely on him. He's, it is so totally, completely better than what they had in the old. And so now this author does that. He says there's a better hope. There's a better way to do it in as much it, And he also says, and by the way, it's better not just because I say so, but why? Because God said so. And when he said so, he confirmed it by doing what? giving them an oath, right? Inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for indeed they, those old, that old system, they became priests, but did they become priests because God gave an oath promising Israel that they would one day have an ironic priesthood and that these priests would come and there would be perfection through this. Did he give that kind of a thing? Did he give that kind of a promise? No. As a matter of fact, how did the ironic priesthood come to be? Do you guys remember when we did our study on that a few weeks ago? How did the how did the ironic priesthood come into be? Yeah, one day God just said, "Moses, go get Aaron and bring him here." That was it. <laughs> it was no bit. There was no big prophetic long term p- 
prophecy about the Iran. In other words, it was more, um, although it certainly was a deliberate thing in the mind of God and it had its picture and therefore it was considered um, sacred and, and it was severely protected. I mean, God was extremely uh, regimented about how they were to keep it and protect it because it was a picture. But, there, but it did not have the same measure of strength as this particular one did because this one came through promises through Abraham first, right? And then it was confirmed through Abraham with an oath. He cut covenant with Abraham. So Abraham understood that when he promised him about this priesthood and about this covenant, that it would be something better. I love that. So then he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So he makes another quote out of Psalm, which is a Davidic, a Davidic quote. So here he is up here talking about something that happened here, which followed what had already happened here. So perspective-wise, this timeline really helps us to see. This was something that David spoke of after this was in place. God made this promise. But concerning that promise, it was made all the way back here. Before any of that happened, God's oath and promises were made right here in this timeline, at the very beginning, before the law ever was in place. Those original promises were, had already been made. And so David then confirms that when he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever speaking of the coming Christ. Okay, and in 23 to 25, here comes another quality that it brings up. And one of you all mentioned it earlier. How come this new priesthood is so much better? How come Jesus is so much better than those other priests in these verses? He's forever. What happens to those other priests? They die, right? And so by virtue of the quality of his indestructible life, because he cannot die, what? That's true. Okay, so he's in 23 to 25, it's about the fact that he's forever. But then in 26 to 28 comes the next point that you're bringing up, which is that he, not only is he better because he lives forever, but he's also better because he is holy and sinless and without without. Um, reproach. So he is a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above. The other priests, when they went to God in that temple that they had, that system that they already had, what did they have to do first? Make their own sacrifices for themselves. But this new system under Jesus, under this new uh, order of priesthood, did he have to do the same? When he went and made his sacrifice, what was his sacrifice? himself he is the holy sacrifice that is such a contrast and and this particular author is simply reminding them about the day of the cross our savior our new great high priest the one that god promised us from eons back he came he suffered himself he died himself he was the sacrifice because he was holy and without blame and when he did it how, how often does he do it once for all time that's it, one time, and it's a complete done. And therefore, he, he intercedes now for them on their behalf perpetually.
Oh, 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 okay, okay, did somebody, did anybody look at that? How is it that Jesus is made perfect? What does the text actually say? Read the verse, how he's made perfect. That's in 5, 7 to 9. Piety, keep going, keep going. And? Okay, so how did, he, how did he become made perfect? Through his suffering. So in that, ter- in that phrase, then the, uh, the, co- the idea of being made perfect me- means what, it, what had he done? He completed that. It was a fulfillment of. He came to his fruition, to that which he was. That's what it's talking about. So sometimes that word perfect is not the same in the English. You have to be careful with it. Yeah. So he didn't become what he wasn't before. It means that he completed something. Having fulfilled it, he, he perfected it. He brought it to its uh, desired end in perfection. Okay. That's right. And because he was, which goes back to, which goes back to four. I love that. And we, and we haven't hit that yet, but exactly. Because actually in chapter eight, verses one to five, that's where he actually cap, he captures that thought again. Right? In 1 to 5, what does it say in chapter 8? Because we are almost at the end and we're doing really good. But he says, now what the main point of all that's been said is this. What? We do have this high priest. This one that you weren't really embracing before and didn't really fully understand. But now I want you to understand, we do have a high priest. And concerning this high priest, who is sinless, who is, lives forever, who is better than the Levites, who's better than, than the Abrahamic covenant through, through him as a better covenant. About him, what, in chapters 1 to 5? He sat down. And the concept, and the Jewish mind, that is huge, 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 huge. Why? The priests never sit down. One of the articles not in the temple was what? No chairs, <laughs> absolutely no chairs, because the whole idea of sitting down tells us what? The work is finished. So when Jesus ascended to the Father's right hand and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and he sits there right now waiting for what? Waiting for the day of his return, waiting for God to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And that will happen through the tribulation days. And when that's completed, he will then rise, he will sit on his horse, and he will arrive now to be king of kings. That king of righteousness, that king of peace that he is portrayed through Melchizedek as being. That he has that image that's in the likeness of, right? That, that Melchizedek is like him in that he was king of peace and king, king of righteousness. So in 1 to 5, he's better. He's better than their old system because his work is finished. 
He sits down now in the, in the heavenly tabernacle. And not only is it better because he sits, but it's also better because where is his, his um, temple or his tabernacle? It's the true tabernacle in the heaven. It's not the, it's not the pretend artificial shadow. It's not the copy, although the copy was important, right? Because he gives a warning and he makes a quote in here about how when they were building, building it, uh, he warned Moses, God warned Moses to build it exactly as he had been given instruction to do, right? Because it, it had imagery in it that God did not want the picture distorted. And so, therefore, they had to maintain the quality of that, that picture. But he said, Jesus, however, does not serve in the copy. He has, back here, he has entered within the veil. And he sits in the true tabernacle in the heavens. So, what a contrast for them. Can you see how he's really bringing them along now little by little and he's showing every single quality about the priesthood and about the old covenant. He's quoting scripture after scripture to validate and strengthen all of the points that he's making and he's making sure that they understand that Jesus is a better way to approach God. It is so much better, you guys. You're not going to ever want to go back to that old system. You're going to be so thankful to be have being released from the pressures and the obligations of that old system to live in the freedom of this new thing. So uh, the one major point in chapter 8 that I just absolutely want to hang on to before we get out of uh, what we're doing here and close this up. There is a contrast going on then between the old and the new. In the old one, what was the problem with the old one was the people, right? And what does it say in verse 9? Excuse me. What happens in verse 9 about the concerning the people and that old system? They couldn't continue in it. They kept failing it, right? And boy, if you go when we go back and do some more study in the old and for those of you who missed Ezekiel and some of those other things that we've looked at, talk about failures, failures after failures and God kept working. Yes. No. Yes. That's right. The people couldn't keep it. But you know what's really neat about this? Look, in verse 9, he says, For they did not continue in my covenant. That was the problem, right? But what does he say in verse 12? What's the contrast with the new one? How is this new one going to be different? Is there failure for us? Can we fail in this new covenant? It's not a condition. Yeah, so you cannot fail in this new one. If you, in fact, enter in, you cannot, you can never break this covenant on your part. Even if you sin, you still can't break it. With Israel in the old covenant, when they sinned and sinned and sinned, finally God says that's enough. And actually he says it right there. He says, I did not care for them, says the Lord. Why? He cast them out of the land. He he disciplined them. In chapter 3 of Hebrews, we see where it says they fell in the wilderness, right? He, he brought judgment on them. In the new, there can be discipline, but you can never be cast out. What a difference that is in this new covenant. This is, this is huge, you guys. He says in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. 
By his blood, forgiveness is once for all. You cannot ever lose that. That's why when people look in chapter 6 and say that it's talking about losing salvation, they are absolutely dead wrong. He says there's such a contrast between the old and the new. In the old, they failed me, and I cared not for them. And I did cast them out. But in this new, it's going to be different. I'm writing those laws on their heart. I'm placing my spirit within them. They will, I will be their God. They will be my, my people. I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful to them. What a contrast between the old and the new. You cannot be cast out in the new. Hey, hallelujah. I mean, can, will God discipline? He's already shown us that he will. So don't think you just get to do it any way you want. You have to be honoring to God or he will discipline you, but he will never cast you out. I love that. What a contrast that is between the old and the new covenant. Can you imagine how those Jewish people thought at that moment? Oh my gosh, God's never going to cast us out again because of this new covenant? What a change for these people. Awesome. All right. Good job, you guys. Contrast.